us pray again. Our gracious God, use this time right now, we ask. I pray, Lord, in spite of me, would you speak here for your glory to draw the hearts of every one of the hearers and mine as well deeper into your presence um, to help us more clearly see you for who you are and call us to you for whatever response, for comfort and conviction today, uh, for help and encouragement, maybe for total transformation. Lord, to that end and for your glory, we ask it. And all God's people said, amen. Afshin Ziafat and his family were from Iran. Afshin spent his early years there, uh, but his latter childhood was in the United States. As a senior in high school, he came to faith in Christ. He tells the difficult story of his family's response to his new faith in Christ and how they didn't receive it. Afshin says, my father, when he found out that I was a Christian, told me that I had to choose between him and following Jesus. Everything in me wanted to say, fine, forget it then. I'll be a Muslim. I want to keep you as my dad. That's what I wanted to do, but I didn't because something else in me kept me there. My dad ultimately disowned me, he said. But then after a time, about a year later, he took me back again. But he took me back under certain conditions. One of those that is that I would agree to go on to be a doctor, which really was always the plan, and I knew that that is what would make my dad proud. Siafshin's father was a successful physician of his own, had his own practice, and wanted to pass it along to Afshin and keep it in the family. Afshin says, he told me that he's going to pay for my entire medical school, and that was what I agreed to do for a time, but God wouldn't let me go. You see, he had other plans for me, even plans that were not even necessarily what I imagined was my own will, but they were clearly God's will, and he triumphed over my will. As Afshin grew into adulthood and he grew in the Lord, he sensed the calling to do something different. So he knew that eventually the day would come, and it did, that he would have to go and tell his dad. I went that day, he said, to talk to my father. My hands were shaking. I told him, Dad, I'm not going to go to med school. Instead, I'm going to go on to school to study something else, and I'm going to go and serve the Lord. He said, my dad called it the biggest stain on his life. He told me, Afshin, you have died to me. Now, Afshin has spent more than the last three decades proclaiming Christ. He's a pastor today, and he has preached in churches and camps and retreats. He's also ministered in the Middle East. He's even helped train Iranian pastors in teaching the word of God. He says that that day with his father was like a death for him. But the Lord has since then used it in many, many ways. One particular story I don't have time to share, but he has shared, is how some years later, after his brother watching him go through all he did and having nothing else to cling to Christ, came to Afshin and said, I don't know what you have, but I want it. And Afshin got to lead his brother to faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord has helped Afshin in many ways, and has worked through him to help many others. 
to walk in the power of Christ's resurrection day in and day out. All of that coming really on the other side of a death. We've been rejoicing in the Lord through the book of Philippians over the last few weeks. We come today, today to the middle verses of chapter 3. Paul, at this point in verses 10 and 11, is at the climax of his personal testimony, having just related how, though he once um, had everything, he came to realize when, when Jesus appeared to him in a bright light, blinded him, knocked him off the horse, spoke from heaven, came to realize that ultimately it was nothing, nothing in comparison to having Christ. And so when the risen Jesus knocked Paul off his horse and appeared to him on the road to Damascus, his eyes were opened in his being blinded that day. And for the first time in his life, he learned to count. That's what we talked about last week. We learned how to count last week, like Paul. We'll see that as we uh, read up to our passage in just a moment. Paul then, after having talked about how he has set everything else aside for the sake of knowing Christ, having gone through that death, both by faith and very really dying spiritually, but also emotionally, probably physically, psychologically, and in his identity and in every other way, was raised to a new life. So now Paul, united with Christ, in our passage this morning, is going to give us the very ambition of his new life. By God's grace, united with Christ, he has resurrection life within himself. And every day, even as our brother Brian just told us a moment ago, he continually moves in that resurrection power and ultimately moves toward that future resurrection one day. That's what we'll see in our passage this morning. Join me. I'm going to back up just a couple of verses to chapter 3, verse 7 of Philippians and read our passage for today. Paul writes, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And now our passage for this morning, his life's ambition now being found in Christ, he says, is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Five things we're going to see this morning that are true of the resurrection life in a believer that are true every single day, not celebrated just on Sunday mornings uh, all year round or not even just one Sunday out of the year, but every single day, the resurrection life alive in you and in me if we know Christ, which makes all the difference. First, first having met Christ, the believer wants to know him more. Having met Christ... The believer wants to know him more. This is the first thing he says, his ambition in verse 10. My ambition is that I may know him. Well, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you, you already knew him. I wasn't, wasn't that the whole point about learning how to count? I thought you just said you were happy to not have your own righteousness, but have his righteousness. You, you were happy to, to set aside all of your identity, all of your success, all of your efforts, and instead cast yourself upon the one who had accomplished it in your place. Well, he did already know Christ. He does. 
That's what he says in 8. I count all things to be lost in view of this surpassing value of knowing Christ. But see, here's the thing for Paul. And here's the thing for you, believer, if you know Christ as well. Knowing Jesus only whets your appetite to know him more. Paul here saying that my ambition is to know Christ. It's not just a greater awareness of him, although certainly that's a part of it. Not just a greater knowledge of the details about him. Oh, sure, as we read the word, as we maybe even study other historical things, we find out more data about him. Absolutely, and we should. But ultimately, what he's talking about is having known him. I now want to know him more, a deeper intimacy, a more profound union, an ability to empathize when he speaks and resonate with the truth of what he says so that I now see life from his perspective. I want to know him like that. That's what we were made for. John 17, the Lord Jesus in his last week before he went to the cross, praying to the Father, says, Father, and this is eternal life that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus defines all that we were made for in eternity and in every day in our lives today to know the Father through the Son. And so Paul is saying, that's what I want. Because now that I've tasted it, I can't get enough. My appetite has only grown and I want to know him more in my life. Can you resonate with that? I hope you can. There is a fallacy that says, having been found by Christ, we need no longer seek him. Oh, how terribly wrong that thinking is, because it's just the opposite. Having come to know Christ, the believer is given a new appetite, a new thirst, a new desire that he can find quenched nowhere else and in no one and nothing else. On the day that you first came to know Christ, believer, some of you here, many of you will be able to recall that day. On the day you first came to know Christ, how well did you know him? Chances are not very well, right? I think back to that day a little over four decades ago, holy cow, 13. I didn't barely know anything about Jesus. I, I, I can't even really say that I actually knew Jesus. I knew a lot about him, but he had been at work. On that day, I placed my faith in Christ. I only knew a few things really clearly. One was that I was desperately in need of a Savior, and I was never going to make it on my own, stand before a holy God, even if I had 70, 80, 90, 100 years on this earth. I was never going to get to be good enough. And I knew I didn't have to, and that made all the difference. I knew that day that I didn't have to, that the Lord Jesus himself he had given me his righteousness. He had died in my place. And if I would lay down my defenses and lay down my life for him and come to him, he would let me know him. That was about all I knew. I could, I could have articulated that much, even at 13, but probably just about nothing else. Think now about how well you know him today. What a joy that is, believer, to think of what he has taught you about himself and if he grants you another decade or two or four or more, how much more you will know him yet before you one day stand before him and know him perfectly without any veil. Do you want to know him more? If you do, if you can honestly say that this morning, then that's probably an excellent indication that you probably already know Christ. Because having met Christ, the believer always wants to know him more. 
except when we're at our worst. I can't guarantee, but if you have that desire, then that's a very good indication. How about the opposite? If you're here this morning and you could say, I honestly don't have much of an interest to know Jesus. The thought of that is sort of like reading a dusty ancient book about a dusty ancient man that doesn't have anything to do with my life, just dusty ancient stuff. I'm sort of apathetic about getting to know Jesus. Then chances are, are that that's an excellent indication that you've never met him. And if that's the case, you're in a great place this morning. Because he is not waiting for you to achieve some status, some performance, some level of moral success, but rather comes to you, calls you, and says, I'm the one who makes it possible for you to know me, to know my Father, to be filled by my Spirit. To know him more, even as we sang, that's the heartbeat of the believer. The ancient believers, Psalm 42, wrote such words. Oh, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you because my trust is in you and I want to know you more. Psalm 73, who am I in heaven? Whom have I in heaven, Lord, but you? And on earth, there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. The psalmist sang, having met Christ, the believer just wants to know him more. Second, the power that raised Christ works in the believer now. The very same power that rose Christ from the dead, that accomplished his resurrection, that same power, Scripture tells us, is actually at work in you now if you know Christ. And you think, well, wow, that sounds like a lot of power. I mean, I don't know that I need that much power. Unless you stop and think about it. How much supernatural power does it take to wean you and me off of our selfishness, off of our pride, off of our greed and our lust and our bitterness? How much does it take to turn our hearts to genuine selflessness, to genuine love, to absolute forgiveness, to real and profound humility? Oh my goodness, I should have just started with that one, right? Because I know it takes a resurrection-sized power to help me, and I'm sure to help you. Christ resurrected is now the basis for the new life you now walk in every day, Christian. That's what we have here. Paul's ambition is, he says, I may, that I may know him, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. In another letter, Ephesians chapter 1, you can just jot this down. I'll read chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. But there, Paul again makes the connection between the resurrection and its power and the power of God's work in you and me. Paul, praying for the Christians in Ephesus, prays that they would know something, that they would experience it. And here's what he prays. Pray that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And then he says, this power is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So there in Ephesians 1, we're told the same power that God used to raise Christ, to ascend Christ, and then to enthrone Christ at his right hand. That same power is the same power at work in you and in me, and I need it every single day. If I'm going to successfully partner with his life in me, 
It will be a supernatural thing. It won't come naturally of my own. That's why I need the word of God every day. That's why I need to talk to my father every day. That's why I need to speak with the Lord Jesus and be in his presence every single day. It's why I need to invite the spirit to work in me every day because I'm also horribly forgetful that it even happened yesterday. At least in my natural born sin, I act as though I forget. And yet every day his resurrection power is available. Believer, do you know that? The power that raised Christ works in you now. You are liberated by the victory of Christ over death. You see, when, when Christ rose from the grave, he wasn't just overcoming his death. He was conquering death. And in fact, even at that, it was much more. Because by taking on all of the wages of sin and by taking on the very curse and everything that flowed from sin, disease, brokenness of relationship, um, broken bodies, corruption, and death itself. By taking all of those on, the Lord Jesus, by his resurrection, the Father was saying, I accept him, I accept this, and all of those will be conquered one day. It's just that Corinthians tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed, that one is named death, the very last one. But now that same power is at work in you, raising you from death to walk in newness of life, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6. So we look forward to full resurrection one day when our bodies will actually be made new, transformed, conformed into the likeness of Jesus' resurrection body, which did some really cool tricks, by the way. You're probably quite familiar. But until that day... The resurrection power is still what works in you and in me. So that in the midst of a world of bitterness and hatred, the resurrection power of Christ might be working in you, patience. In the midst of a world of, of power and hatefulness and, and doggone it, I'm going to be proven right, the resurrection power of Christ is working in you humility and that's a miracle in the midst of a world that would fight to cow you to make you cower to cause you to live in fear the spirit of God is working in you boldness in a world that is utterly deceived and confused a world that is upside down and can't even decide what it wants from one moment to the next. The spirit of God through resurrection power is working in you clarity and truth and conviction. You see, it's the resurrection power of Christ at work in us that allows us to stand and much more to grow. Third, third, the believer participates in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. The believer participates in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Again, Paul's ambition, that I may know him and, and I may know the power of his resurrection and, and that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. Now you think, great, Paul is a total masochist, right? He's seriously morbid. He has a total death wish. No, he doesn't. It's just that he knows these three things, though distinct, though he can enumerate them, all overlap and are completely intertwined. 
Because the best way to know Christ, the, the best way to experience power in our lives is also to personally experience the fellowship of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? You see, when we were called to follow Christ, we were called to walk in suffering. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul says in Timothy. But hey, that's okay, because really the alternative, if you didn't know Christ, is just suffering for the rest of your life anyway. It just would have been purposeless suffering. For man is born for adversity as sparks fly upward. It's just the coming to Christ, now you have a peculiar call in suffering, and so much more, as this passage tells us, not only to a peculiar suffering, but also to a peculiar fellowship. Because as you suffer, you will never do it alone, believer. Alec Motier, one commentator, writes it this way, we are not copying a dead model, but we're walking in fellowship with a living Savior. It's not as though we read the Gospels and we look at the life of Jesus and we strategize and we try and figure out how to, you know, exactly copy the things he did. And, uh, you know, there's like a flow chart of, okay, when this happens, I do, you know, Roman numeral four, you know, letter D sub point six, and then I'll just be just like Jesus. No, I just know him. I just walk with him. I cry out to him and there is a deeper fellowship. I know him more when I suffer for him and with him. Paul writes similar words in 2 Corinthians 4. There he will say, we carry about in our body the dying of Jesus Christ. What a, what a tangible expression. Our own body sometimes emotionally suffering because of our love for Christ. Physically suffering sometimes because of Christ. Psychologically, spiritually suffering but with Christ, in fellowship with him, partnering all the way. Those of you who have been here through the book of Philippians, you'll know this partnership, this fellowship is a key word. Paul writes in chapter 1 to these Christians, and he, he commends them for their partnership in the gospel. And then he commends them for their partnership in grace that they have all experienced together. Now he gets to chapter 3, and he says, also you are called to partnership in the sufferings of Jesus. But oh, the fellowship. Oh, the fellowship that's there. Romans chapter 8 says, if we suffer with him, we also will be glorified with him. And see, that's the point. In the midst of our suffering now, I more deeply know Christ and I can more, more greatly experience his power. So I don't want the suffering, but boy, I sure love what comes from it. If the spirit of God has his way in my life. This is really not an anomaly to... Philippians chapter 3, by the way, Jesus, from the time of his own ministry on the earth, in calling people to follow him, has been calling them to suffer with him and for him ever since the beginning. How about Matthew chapter 5? Those words from the Beatitudes are familiar. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because you're really just a grump and a grouch. Is that how the verse finishes? No. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not even because you were wrong, but because of me. Blessed are you in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. He told his followers, Matthew 10, calling people to follow him. 
He tells us that we're just students. We're pupils. He's the teacher. We're servants. He's the master. Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house king of the devils, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of the household? Luke chapter 9 and many other places. The Lord Jesus regularly told those who walked on dusty roads with him to do what? Take up your cross and follow me. Not take up your cross and go blaze a trail somewhere. No, take up your cross and come into the fellowship of my sufferings and walk in my blood-stained footprints because I've gone before you. And you will know me like you've never known me if you will suffer for me. And you will have power in your life like you've never known if you suffer with me. And Paul says, for the sake of all of that, I want to know the fellowship of participating in his sufferings. United with Christ, this is now his lifelong ambition. Fourth, the believer is being forged by the Spirit. Fourth, the believer is being forged by the Spirit. Paul tells us three things that he strives for, and then he tells us a little bit about how it happens. He tells us the dynamic that is at work in this experience of the overlap of intimacy and power and fellowship and suffering. How does that all happen? Paul explains that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Okay, sufferings was bad enough, but now it's really getting serious. But understand where Paul's going to go. The resurrection. How do you get to resurrection? You have to die first. It's the only way to get there, right? And that's the glory of knowing Christ. Because there is no fear for the one who knows resurrection as his final and future hope, but also at his, as his present and, and current power to walk in newness of life. And part of the process, part of the spiritual dynamic is in this little phrase, being conformed to his death. Now notice that this is in the passive. It's what theologians referring to uh, phrases like this in scripture like to call the divine passive. It's where God shows up without telling us that he's there. Being conformed to his death. Paul doesn't say, I'm, I'm forming myself more to the death of Christ. No, it's not Paul doing the conforming. He's the one being conformed. So who's doing the conforming? Answer, it's the Holy Spirit. It's a divine passive. It's all over scripture. We understand the one doing the work is the Spirit of God who alone can do it and do, effect, do it effectively. How do we know that? Well, because we know Romans 8 tells us that it is the Holy Spirit who helps us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Paul doesn't have a death wish. He's not asking to die, although from chapter 1 we know he would welcome it if he gets to go home to see Jesus. But in the meantime... It's not a death of this life in final form, but so much as a spiritual death every day in its partial form. And that might be even harder. Being conformed to his death by the spirit who works in him day in and day out. The end of, end of Romans 8 says at one point we will be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed 
to the image of Christ. Same, same word there in the Greek, same author writing it under inspiration of the Spirit, conformed to his death, conformed into his image. It's just here the focus is on our, our need for dying. We're told in a few more verses, Philippians 3.21, the same word, that, that God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So here is your end state, Christian. Conformity to the Son. A body conformed to his body. And oh, that's going to be great. Things you've never done before you'll be able to do. And also by being conformed to his death and eventually resurrection, a spirit and a character like his. You'll never fight with sin again. Never again. But you'll thrill to the sound of your master's voice. You'll rejoice to sing his praises. You'll be glad to do work. And trust me, there is work to do in the new heavens and new earth. It's not cloud sitting and harp strumming, okay? There is a new heavens and a new earth and new work. Just like God created in the garden, so he will in the eternal state for his people give us good work to do for forever to his glory. <laughs> and you'll be great at it. And you'll spend all eternity getting better at it. I want to keep talking about that, but the other connection to make here as he talks about being conformed, and we know it's the Spirit doing the conforming, the other connection to make to help us apply is, is he's already used a part of this compound word a couple of times, a couple of poignant places in Philippians earlier at beginning of chapter 2 where he said that the Lord Jesus who existed in the form of God he was the very essence of God and is God himself. And then he took on the form of a servant. He took on the very essence of a servant. Well, what is the spirit now doing in you and me? He is now co-forming us into the death of Christ. And if you want an idea of what that feels like or looks like or how to describe it day in and day out, you can go back to those other form words in Philippians 2.8. Where he says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so it is for us. Man, it's hard when the Spirit of God tells you, bro, you need to go humble yourself. I would rather die. Yeah, I know. But just go do it and I'll raise you up. You'll never regret that. Go forgive can't fail. I'd rather die. <laughs> I know. But I'll raise you up. Lord, I'm afraid. I, I can't pull that off. There's no way. I can't open my mouth. I can't be bold. I'd rather die. I know. <laughs> Just go do it. And after you're dead, I'll meet you on the other side and you'll never regret it. And you'll know me like you've never known me. And you'll share in my sufferings like you've never shared. And you'll have a newfound and growing power in your life like you haven't had before. Let my spirit conform you to the essence, the form of my death. And so for us today, in Christ, we likewise die to the dominion of the old nature of sin in our life, step by step and day by day. And what a glorious death it is for us. The spirit humbles us so he can form Christ in us. The Spirit enables us so that we can do what we otherwise couldn't do, so we can form 
Christ in us. The Spirit applies the position of Christ to us so that when we now in our desperate need cry out because I can't do it, he says, I know, my son, my daughter, you have the position of my beloved son, and I'm here to answer you so I can conform you to Christ. And then I don't even know how to describe this one except to say that it's a spiritual thing, and I can just put words to it. The Spirit enters us into the death of Christ in a way. I don't even know how to explain that. But that's what it says. By being conformed, the resurrection becomes real in our life in these other three things. By that resurrection power, I know him, I have power, and I partner in the fellowship of his suffering. The believer is being forged by the Spirit. That's why the resurrection is good news every day. Fifth and finally, as I said, what comes after death? Resurrection. The believer rests in resurrection. Finally, Paul tells us the believer rests in resurrection. I wrestled with what word to put there. In fact, I'm going to give you both because you can put them both there. Could be rest, could be race. They're the exact opposite, but they're both there. Paul is going to end, I think, this portion by saying, and ultimately, I rest in the resurrection because that's my final answer for it all. Guys, if he rose from the dead, everything else he said matters more than everything else in the universe. Guys, if he didn't rise from the dead, nothing else he said really matters a whit, does it? But if he rose, it can rest in the resurrection because of the work he does in us today. Paul's ambition 10 again, that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and know the fellowship of his suffering by being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, one quick comment about the English translation there of the word attain. I don't love it as the favorite way to translate what's there, but I understand, I think, why Paul uses a word that has that nuance. I understand, I think, why the English authors translate it that way. Here's the reason why. I'm going to give you why I think the believer races toward resurrection. Because here's where Paul's about to go. The very next verse 12, he's going to say, look, I haven't attained it. I don't know Jesus as well as I'd love to know him. I don't have the power that I hope to have. I don't have the deep fellowship with him and his suffering that I could have. It's way better than it was yesterday. Not as good as it's going to be tomorrow, but I'm going to keep pressing forward. He says the resurrection, that fact, that settled fact, causes me to race forward in my life. You get the point? And what he's going to say in verse 12 is he's going to say, I haven't attained it yet. Ding, 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 key word, right? Verse 11, what he's doing is he's bleeding into where he's going to go. So it would have been nice if he had just kept it simple and in English they could have translated and said, knowing that one day I will arrive at the resurrection and I rest in that. I think that's what he means 9 through 11. But he's already hinting at where he's going to go. Because Paul's righteousness before Christ, his standing, which is a gift from God before Christ, does not make him complacent. It makes him vigilant. The fact that he knows he will be resurrected one day does not make him passive. It makes him terribly active. He says, oh, no, you don't understand. <laughs> I've tasted, and I want more of it, and I am pressing into it, and oh, goodness, it's hard, and oh, this world lies, and oh, there are days when I just want to give up the fight, but I taste it afresh, and he rises me again, and I strive to know him more. That's where he's going. So anyway, thanks for entertaining my own uh, personal dilemmas. Um, let's uh, 
Go back to the point I think 9 through 11 are making. The believer rests in the resurrection. Some have read verse 11 and thought, Paul wants to attain to the resurrection. I've just explained to you why I think it's translated that way. And so they've uh, wrongly said maybe he's trying to earn his salvation. Yeah, duh, unless he's going to contradict what he just said two verses ago. Because look at verse 9. I just want to show you that he's certain and secure in his salvation. Verse 9, he has just said, all this counting... Because my eyes were open, I couldn't help count everything else as worthless compared to Jesus. All this counting was so that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Okay, a very smart person looking at our world today has summarized thusly. They said the problem with the American heart today largely is that we are convinced that our problem is something external to us. And the solution is something inside of us. Whether it's our circumstances into which we were born or the difficulties of the world we live in or some other hardship that we have found our way into, we think that our primary problem is external. And every one of those is serious and they matter, but they ain't our biggest problem. And then we're prone to think, because our culture's told us this, taught us, that the solution lies in looking inside. If I would just be true to myself, if I could just block out all these voices of the world and be true to myself and look within, I could find the power to be exactly what I should be. And if I could self-actualize, then everything would be perfect. The wise man said that our problem is that we tend to think that our problem is external and the solution is internal, when in reality, our greatest problem is internal and our solution is external. You see, every other problem that you have is a problem, but the biggest problem you have is your sin. Because your flesh, your sin, what you've taught yourself, your selfishness, your lust, your greed, your whatever, in every way that we break the law of God and earn his wrath and earn him to rightly judge us for all eternity also has the sad tangential effect of leading us down a path to our own destruction. If God didn't do it, if he didn't judge, we destroy ourselves enough on our own. Our problem is eminently internal and the solution is external. Where'd you get that? I read verse 9, right? This is the phrase I've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The reformers, taking this and other verses, called the righteousness of the Christian, do you remember the term? An alien righteousness. Because it's not mine. It came from him. He died on the cross. He gave it to me as a gift. I'll never find it within. So what is Paul doing then in verse 11? He's speaking humbly when he uses a word that we translate attain to the resurrection. But what he is saying very clearly is he is certain that he will be resurrected one day. And all of his brokenness, all of the sin that he wrestles with, all of the, the, the corruption of his very body will all be, be resolved in that day in the power of Christ when he comes to set all things right because he knows him. And he says, I don't know how I'm going to get there. He's already mentioned that back in chapter 1. I don't know if I'll die and see Christ or if I'll live on, maybe until he might even come. Of course, that's been answered for Paul by now. But we don't know for us. We all will be resurrected, either to eternal life and peace with the Lord or to eternal judgment. 
Paul knows where he will stand in the resurrection, not because of him, but because of what's been done for him. And ultimately, that's going to be his rest and his motivation to race. What difference does the resurrection make for us today? The fact that Christ came out of the grave and his father said, I accept all that you've done, my son. I'm pleased with all that you have accomplished and I want all the world to know. The difference it makes for us is every day we walk in a new power. Every day we need to be prepared to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And every day we get to know him more as he works in us. And so we rest in the resurrection. Paul gives us this morning the ambition of his life. And it's the ambition of every believer who has union with Christ. If you don't know that yet today, then we want to tell you that you don't have to accomplish anything to have an alien righteousness, to have him give you as a gift the very new life that he calls you to. But you do have to receive it. You do have to call your sin, sin. You do have to name your need. You do have to repent and turn from anything in your own power to accomplish it. But oh, if you will, he will meet you a million times over and wash you and steal your shame and call you his son or his daughter and sing over you. And resurrection life will start to live in you. If you've never known that before, then we pray that you talk to the Lord and he might do that in you today. The Christian has new life in himself by God's grace, a resurrection life. And he moves every day of his life continuously in that resurrection life and ultimately toward that resurrection one day. Stand with me and let's close together in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you. You who are the architect of all of world history that you have made a way that you could both judge sin and show yourself righteous and just and at the same time embrace sinners and show yourself loving, merciful, and forgiving. You crushed your son. You put him to death. You poured out your wrath on him in my place. And, oh, Lord, I could not thank you enough. Lord Jesus, we who know you, we just want to know you more. So help us this week, even through the sufferings we share as your children, to know you more and to have greater power. We ask for any in our midst, Lord, who don't yet know that, that just as you saved us and called us, that you would call them and that they would bow their head, call out to you and receive you. Lord, we thank you for this day, for the resurrection, and that you one day will be seen to be Lord and God over all. Thank you that you are the one who conquered even the grave itself. We give you the glory for it, and we praise you for it. And all God's people said, amen. amen.